Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. Sarah Soleimani is an actor, writer, and producer. Her first major TV role was alongside Russell Tovey in the BBC3 sitcom Him and Her. She went on to star in Bad Education and No Offence in the films Bridget Jones' Baby and How to Build a Girl. She was the writer and executive producer of anti-fascist period drama, much loved on this programme, Ridley Road, adapted from Joe Bloom's novel for the BBC uh, last year. Now she's about to appear in a new Channel 4 comedy drama alongside Steve Coogan, Chivalry, it's called, which she and Coogan wrote together, and it offers a fresh perspective on the complex state of gender politics and romance within the film and TV industry. It asks the question, can one build and sustain a successful, relevant career in Hollywood without sacrificing authenticity, amongst other things? I think we've got a blast of the trailer. Isn't she amazing? I cannot work with men like Cameron O'Neill. I was trying to avoid getting my bottom spanked by a bunch of angry feminists. <laughs> Cameron will reject you at first. They try to sleep with you. Don't let them. Just want to get the scene so we never have to see each other again. Finally, something we both agree on. Don't trust this man. He is sneaky. No comment. You love him, but you hate him. I mean, I presume you want to make this. Of course I want to make my movie. Then get smart. Chivalry. Well, I think they went rather well. Well, that was uh, uh, part of the trailer for Chivalry and Sarah Soleimani joins me now live in the studio. And Sarah, I have to say you've done it again. I absolutely loved it. Oh. I've only seen one episode so far, but I'm planning to binge watch it if I possibly can. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. But it is a brave woman who decides to make a comedy about the Me Too movement. How did that sort of germinate? Well, Steve and I were doing a film called Greed with Michael Winterbottom and Me Too had just happened. And we started having some debates, conversations, arguments and making each other laugh and asking each other kind of some probing questions. And as we were in dialogue, we were like, this is, this, this is the start of something. And we just started writing and then Channel 4 came on board and understood what we wanted to do. And really, we just wanted these characters from different experiences, different backgrounds to be in dialogue and understand what was happening around them because it can be quite confusing and overwhelming. We're in this new kind of cultural moment without undermining what the Me Too movement was, which was a collective global confession of pain and abuse and a reckoning. So it was kind of a fine line that we had to tread, but um, I'm very fine, <laughs> very fine line, but you've trodden it so daintily. And um, tell me a little bit about, about the two main characters. You play Bobby and um, Steve Coogan plays Cameron. Tell me about Bobby first. How would you describe it? She's a little bit, I mean, in the first episode, she's a little bit po-faced. Is that she's fair? She's a bit po-faced. She's a bit uptight. She's been happy 
hacking through this jungle that she says that most average men stroll into, which is why she doesn't have any hobbies. There's a big uh, debate about why women don't have any hobbies in, I think, episode four. And like a lot of women, she's found herself with a little bit of power and an opportunity. And it's a lot. It's And it's stressful. And she has a kid and she's spinning plates. And Cameron comes along. And in a weird way, he's sort of a seductress because he has money and power and he can help her get films made. And this sort of will-they-won't-they they, uh, romance kind of blossoms throughout the thing. But the comedy is, it, it, it's sort of subtle and very sharp, you know. And the opening scene, I think it's Steve Coogan is Cameron sitting by a poolside at somewhere like the Sunset Marquee and he's talking to these two young girls before Bobby arrives. And he's sort of, you can see that what he's trying to do is invite them to Goldeneye in Jamaica for a sort of <laughs> dodgy, some kind of, um, you know, film vaguely related moment. How much um, is he based on you know, uh, real characters and how much is he based on a sort of an amalgam of traits? Aha, good question. Um, I think it's, he, it, we're both playing sort of exaggerated uh, versions of ourselves in some extent, but he, you know, like Steve, has, Steve's been very successful for most of his adult life. Uh, he's got, he was famous in his 20s. He's made things that he wants to make. Um, and I think in the show, we explore men who actually have had power and influence for so long that they sort of forget that they are top of the hierarchy. So when something like Me Too happens, where questions are being asked about status and about power dynamics, a lot of men are going, no, no, no this is just the way it is, isn't it? And so Bobby comes along and says, just because you know, you're fine, so everything's fine, doesn't wash anymore. And she sort of teases him for having a relationship with his assistant who's in, his, in her 20s. But he's just, <laughs> he's just split up with her, hasn't he? His life partner. Yes, just under life 25. Partner. He's just under 25. And he's like, I loved her. And I'm like, she, you know, booked your proctologist appointments. It wasn't love. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a kind of examination, I guess, of power. But at the same time, that we wanted to stay in the grey area of it because... My character, she, she's got this power. And in episode two, she has a sort of interaction with a stand-in and she sort of regrets how far she takes it. Uh, that's tantalising in itself. <laughs> um, how much is Bobby based around your own experiences to an extent? Um, I think a lot of it, you know, I drew upon my life growing up in the industry you know I started in, as a teenager and it was only when I did the show uh, Barry for HBO as a writer the the SNL star Bill Hader was asking me about my experiences and he said do you have any crazy stories being an actress I was like of course I do every actress has crazy stories and I sort of listed them off in quite a trivialized way almost like a badge of honor on on what I'd been through or what had happened because every actress I know has had these things happen to them um and, he, and this is pre-me too and his face was horrified. He said, I can't believe that happened to you. And I was like, this is, maybe this isn't just what everyone goes through. Um, so it was an opportunity to uh, make work out of some of those incidents and, and, and find space for laughing because we, we have to laugh. Otherwise, you, you can't heal. But you have to laugh and there has to be levity also because you can't communicate 
the sort of degree of 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 destructiveness about the status quo unless unless you can lure people in can you i mean i think what you said is 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 really important in terms of men just not really understanding how bad it is you know and and, and kind of needing to be led gently to to perhaps look at it from a different perspective absolutely it's it's like a it's a reckoning where we look back even just as a young girl, you know, in a school uniform walking down the street and being heckled or groped or just knowing, oh, that was just something we thought happened to schoolgirls and going, no, we, we, we don't stand for that anymore. We're not accepting that kind of behaviour. And for men too, going, maybe there were certain dynamics which I thought were consenting or um, on some equal footing. And now I realise there was a power imbalance. I mean, the, the, there is that thing, isn't there, is constantly being accused of not seeing the joke. But actually, the joke not being that funny to start with, you know. <laughs> well, that's it. I can I mean, see it, but it's just not funny. Well, my biggest fear with this show was that you know you'd fall into that kind of classic comedy trope of Steve being sort of funny and and bumbling, and me being eye rolling, me like you silly old sexist, you can't go around saying that anymore. And actually, we had to be a proper double act where there wasn't a straight guy. We we're both setting ourselves up and and finding the comedy in all kinds of areas. But that's what I quite like about it as well is that there is ambiguity. Ambiguity and, and and it feels like uh, you know it's uh, you know it's a situation it's a scenario that really desperately requires ambiguity. There's ambiguity in terms of how we conduct our relationships in general, you know, and it's something that you also explore in the first episode. Even that ambiguity about what's permissible and what isn't. There's no finite line it's having the power to be able to say no and yes and that's right. not how my career is going to progress thank you very much and, and and things like that isn't it right it's about dialogue and communication and uh that's what we set out to do was to make people laugh and kind of relax so everyone's invited to join the table and find something funny and people may be laughing uh at different for different reasons at the same thing now, you'll say that none of the characters are based on uh, real people, but you have to talk me through Pierre, the film director. He, he He's not long in the series. I don't mm. think I'm giving too much away by saying that. But he does answer the door to you mm -hmm. and uh, Cameron, uh, mm -hmm. or to Bobby and Cameron, uh, in his dressing gown to um, see you in to have a little conversation about a film. So it does feel like there's a bit of Harvey Weinstein in there, a man famous for entertaining in his dressing gown. There's, there's, a, there's probably some echoes of Harvey Harvey, um, and maybe a little bit of Catherine Deneuve, who wrote a letter after Me Too happened saying it's going to be the death of sex and how will men ever flirt with women again. And so there's sort of like a triumvirate of, of, of powerful Hollywood men, feminist filmmakers, and then the French who are uh, sort of worried that they're going to have uh, be compromised artistically, which he represents, and we sort of uh, deal with it. And tell me a bit about um, who I thought she was just brilliant, Sienna Miller playing Lark. Yes, so she... Lark, I'm, I'm right, aren't I? Lark, yeah, yeah exactly. So she's this sort of highly strong actress who's been doing the job for a very long time and just wants to get the shot done and is a bit over it and kind of been conditioned by the industry, I guess, to put up with certain behaviour. So that's probably every actress I've ever met, uh, including myself, who... Um, Yes, has put up with some some shady stuff. Is it true that um, that you first encountered kind of you know the the, the, the elements of sexism when you were at Cambridge uh, in Footlights and and there was only one woman allowed in every production. I mean, it wasn't a written rule, but a sort of you know a status quo. 
Yeah, there was a one woman per show sort of, yeah, just a fact. And um, everyone kind of rolled their eyes at it and lamented that that was the case. But it didn't ever change. Um, but at Cambridge at that time, I found it quite... I did find there was there was sexism and there was just a... Disp- there was a disproportionate number of men, of men and women in, in the college systems. And I went to an all-girls college. I was pulled to an all-girls college. Uh, Murray Edwards, shout out to all the Murray Edwards girls. Um, but it was a very male... Uh, a heavy place the teaching and the uh, student lifestyle I mean there was this like the Burlington club uh, at Oxford there was this pit club and it was the only place that you could have a late night drinking which coming from London and being a big boozer I thought was grossly unfair that you had to be a man and went to eat crime against humanity right to be able to drink yes exactly to be able to drink past midnight um but uh yeah, it was it was an interesting time, but I had a lot, I did have a lot of fun, so I don't be too sob story about my my Cambridge years. But do you think that there there is a sense? You know, we we do hear a lot, maybe because of me too. Uh, you know, a lot about um, the impact of sexist behaviour in the entertainment industry. But the fact of the matter is that it runs through every single facet of life for women. Uh, you know, the world over, and in fact, you know, we're living the dream in this country in comparison to a lot of other places. You know, in the world. Right. And I mean, it's like they say, you know, it's never been a better time to be a woman or to be a minority in this moment in life. Um, But I think we wanted to take the film industry because it's it's an extraordinary set of circumstances when you're making work. And sometimes in looking at the extraordinary, you can magnify and shed light on the ordinary. And anyone who has a public facing job, anyone who has to kind of get their head around this new moment we're in with identity, be it race, gender, class, they are trying to work out the codes that maybe they didn't think existed and realizing that they do and trying to locate themselves within it. So it's, there's a lot to be hopeful for and there's a lot to be excited by. And hopefully I think this show has elements of all of that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back. Uh, my guest is Sarah Soleimani, and we're talking about her new channel for comedy drama, Chivalry, which is absolutely excellent. Does that sound right? Absolutely excellent. It, yeah. You can yeah, have it. You. I gift it to you. Uh, but we're also uh, wanting to talk a bit about you. And, and you've been a, a vocal campaigner for Working Parents on film sets, uh, quite famously uh, uh, turning up at the Bridget Jones baby <laughs> premiere wearing a T-shirt that suggested that there should be crashes for um, film and entertainment sets. I never ne- actually thought of it, but it was a really good idea. I mean, when you talk to actresses about their 14-hour days and you wonder how you do that along with parenting, it does feel like it's very much still sort of back in, in the dark ages. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, it's it's a terrible tragedy that we, we lose um, women and, and parents uh, not just in front of the camera but behind the camera when they de- decide to start families and um, it, people have invested their lives in trying to get ahead in the industry and just as when they make gains in it um, having children often just prevents them from working and so 
I supported raising films. I had a banner uh, 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 that I took to the Bridget Jones premiere, and um, and then Charlotte Riley and Tom Hardy they they ran with it and they have a Wonderworks um, nursery which they have at Leavesden. Um, they try and keep families in film, and um, we've got a long way to go, but we we're making progress. People are talking about it, and um, you know they have nurseries at Morgan Stanley. They have nurseries at Goldman Sachs. Why is the banking community more advanced than us? We're supposed to be creative and progressive, and it doesn't take much. It's just a bit of budgeting, so that people don't have to make that torturous dilemma. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because I mean, most stars uh, on the night before their premiere are worrying about what they're going to wear, not what they're going to write on their banner. Are you um, an, a natural campaigner, a natural-born campaigner, do you think? Well, the truth was I was definitely worrying about what I was wearing. In fact, I said to Raising Films, that can, I'll have the banner, but can it, can it match the dress? Because it's gold and beaded. <laughs> so shallow. Yeah, I didn't want it like some marker pen on a kind of piece of cardboard. No, so it was a gold, it was a gilded protest sign so you know protests can be glam (laughs) you're living proof um were you actually advised to to hide your pregnancy uh, at work yes an old actress told me that maybe she you know she wasn't thinking it through but she said when uh, people found out I, i was pregnant does the phone stop ringing and um and i was i was just so terrified i think a lot of actresses or creative women when they embark on the journey of motherhood it's so overwhelming there's no maternity leave there's no precedent you you what what will you do you're always hustling for work suddenly your body means you can't for a period of time so I was very paranoid um and and worked right up to the final moment I did a voiceover they said when are you when are you due and I said tomorrow at 11 because I had a cesarean booked um and similarly in in Hollywood when I had my second child um I got a call saying Michelle Pfeiffer has read your script, really wants to meet you, but she can only meet you tomorrow because she's going to London to film Maleficent. They said, when are you due? And I went, I'm due tomorrow. They said, we'll send you a car. And then um, I met <laughs> What? Mich- yeah. So I waddled to meet Michelle Pfeiffer and I only had uh, Dorno Porter, a friend of mine, had lent me her maternity wardrobe. So I was wearing this massive cow print dress, <laughs> nine months pregnant, and Michelle went oh my god when do you do and I went today and she went oh so I really responded to the material went straight to business <laughs> uh, well you could either say a true pro or acclimatised to the Hollywood <laughs> atmosphere no just take a day off Sarah for god's sake you're nine months <laughs> pregnant you shouldn't be anywhere and you shouldn't be nowhere near Michelle Pfeiffer um, I think it's something that you have uh, also incorporated into chivalry in a way which which is that thing that also once you've had children it is very often women who are the ones who are trying to sort of juggle the doing the job and actually parenting there's a great thing just in the opening uh, episode where I think your husband Bobby's husband uh, calls her to, to check on some yogurt that he's taken out of the fridge yeah. and, you know, just in the middle of a really <laughs> really tricky situation yeah there's there's a scene where I might get a really tricky shot and I'm so pleased and I'm managing this whole team and then uh, my husband calls me he's like he won't poo unless you talk to him and sing him because he was holding it this is the thing my son did was like holding his poo in uh, so she, you get that so, you know that pendulum swing of like high flying boss lady and then like let the poo 
come out of your bum and you're singing it as, as you're trying to be um, professional. <laughs> I'll be with you in a minute, yeah. just a second. Um, you are actually based in in LA and this series is, is, is filmed in LA. Do you think that, um, that things have changed? Because I mean, in, in a way, it's sort of the epicentre of bad behaviour or the, or the place where it's emanated from. But it is also, it feels very reconstructed now in mm. a way, you know. Is it Well, I, I arrived weeks before Trump and uh, uh, and torrential rain actually so it's when America was hitting rock bottom I arrived and uh, and then and then me too happened and the resistance so I've only really experienced it living there in this very kind of revitalized new energy pulsing through it but what you have to remember Hollywood is that it's a very like the whole of America it's a hyper capitalist culture so if it pays or if it costs you, if if someone's going to be removed from a project because there are criminal accusations, that's expensive. So they have to avoid that. And so in a weird way, the kind of capitalism of it kind of has corrected the gender of it because you can't afford to make those kind of mistakes. So if you're in a Hollywood writer's room, you'll get a studio executive coming in to just spell out that if you take someone for lunch during these weeks it's still work and everything you say should be taken in a professional context and you have men reacting to that feeling terribly policed that they're being um controlled and you have women like me going wow it feels like time's up do you think that that it is also that that um commitment to commercialism that's the reason that it's i think you've said this a, a better place really to be working as a as a woman writer now do you think that they've woken up to the um commercial prospects from female writers in a way that, that, that we actually haven't yet in this country. I mean, it's still baffling to me that in this country, when you have the economic argument and we have the data, and believe me, we, you know, working women, especially mothers, haven't had the spare time to go around collecting all the data about commissioning statistics, but we've done it. And it's horrifying. And it's still 70, 80% male commission shows. And we have the talent and we have women here and we have the economic argument. So what... What are the decisions being based on? Uh, a friend of mine, Deborah Francis White, who's a fantastic writer, she um, had a very honest conversation with a female commissioner who admitted that she had a male bias because that's how she grew up and that's what she thinks and trusts uh, that will be successful. So there's still a bias. We feel more comfortable giving power and money to men. And also, I think men feel more comfortable receiving it. Um, so there's something that uh, the American culture embraces in women, which is a front footed, ambitious, confident energy, which sometimes in our culture, it feels we're still a bit off. It's still a bit off. It feels like a sort of matrony. It reminds us of, well, if you went to public school, perhaps the sort of matronly women who, who gave you laxatives and uh, looked after you. We don't like that kind of woman. Do you think that if the... I mean, you know, I'm a big supporter of the BBC. I worked for them for a very long time, um, still do on occasion. But do you think if the BBC wasn't public service, that it might have to change its approach more radically than it has? I mean, you know, it's very much considers itself... You know, it's a huge producer of programming. It very much considers itself to be, uh, you know, a place uh, of righteousness, if you will, moral righteousness. But actually, when you talk about the, 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 the sort of male bias commissioning and everything, a lot of that uh, stems uh, from the BBC. Um, and I wonder if there is something there about the sort of, you know, that, that sort of um, the commercialism that you're describing in America and the absence of it in this country, that's what's holding us back. It's an interesting question. I mean, I'd hate to think that 
a sort of privatized model would uh, be more progressive. It might be more help. responsive to their audience. I mean, you know, 70 to 80 percent of programs commissioned by men, as you say, and probably 70 to 80 percent of programs, TV programs, certainly watched by women. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, my experience, especially in the drama department, I mean, uh, Piers, who commissioned Ridley Road, he's been making some incredible... Love that programme, did I tell you Thank that? Thank you so much, I appreciate that, hugely. Um, uh, you know, uh, Michaela Cole, he commissioned um, Ridley Road. You can actually come I think, by using this platform to make some brave decisions, which may not be informed by the market. Um, so, so I'm going to let the BBC Drama Department off on, on, on this one occasion. Fair enough. They've been very good to you, actually, in a way, so maybe you should. It's probably the right career move, if you will. Um, you have um, yourself now in the envelope situation. You've been a coveted writer and a coveted actress. Um, if you had to choose, is there a choice to be made? Does one give you power that you wouldn't otherwise have? If there was childcare on sets, I'd act more. Um, I have a three-year-old and an eight-year-old, and the first two years of my eight daughter's life were very disruptive because I was having to figure out childcare with every different job. So writing is, the lifestyle of writing is great because I can be, you know, a very present mother. I don't have a nanny and I like to do, I'm quite hands-on. So the writing lifestyle suits me, but um, I love the joy of being on set and working in a team and bringing a story to life. It's, 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 it is truly a blessing to be able to, to do both. We've talked like you're a single parent, but I presume your husband does some <laughs> childcare as well. Yes, he does. He's he's yes. It was a very very equal very equal parenting. So it was seventy thirty to me. <laughs> very, very representative. Very representative. Well no. done. I mean, you. I'm saying that I'm like gallivanting around London. He's back at home with both kids and a full time job and no help. Is Good home, luck, Daniel. Is is home LA? Yes. For the foreseeable future. Why have you gone? Um, they would make you know they would. I was received there. You know, I was received there with open arms, and um, I have an agent there who I call the Resurrector because she finds these scripts that just die to death here and brings them back to life and sells them. Um, uh, but I will be—I'm back and forth a lot, and this is home. I'm a Londoner, born and bred. I'll always be a Londoner. Thanks for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my programme every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time.